Hi, this is Wayne Randazzo of the WCBS Mets Radio Network, and you're listening to Baseball and BBQ. Long Island, New York. This is episode 204 of a very special baseball and barbecue. And I am here with my wonderful, and I do mean wonderful, co-host Jeff Cohen. Say hi, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. And I'm Leonard Aberman. <laughs> you know, you're Leonard Hollywood Aberman. All right. I forgot the Hollywood. And we have such an exciting show for you guys. We have Mickey Calloway. Jeff, please tell tell the listeners who Mickey Calloway is. He was the former pitching coach of the Cleveland Indians, now the Guardians, when they went to the World Series. He was the former manager of the New York Mets. And he was a player too, right? He was a player on the 2002 world champion Los Angeles Angels. Or were they the uh, Anaheim Angels? Or were they the California Angels back then? I don't remember. <laughs> well, you know what? We anyway. were they the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim? I, who knows? Who remembers that? <laughs> what a career. What a career. <laughs> what a career he's had in baseball. And it's an honor to speak with him. And then, no slouch in his own right, Brian Lee of BT Lee's Sauces and Rubs. We're going to have a great talk with Brian. He says his friends call him Brian. Yeah. So we're going to call him Brian. Okay. Brian Lee of BT Lee's. But let me just tell everybody, before we get to the frivolity and festivities, football is back. And Bet Online is your number one information source for all your sports wagering information with all the up-to-the-minute stats News, scores, and matchup breakdowns. Get the latest game odds, spreads, and totals from the NFL and college football at your fingertips with Bet Online's real time updates on statistic news and odds. From week one all the way to college football playoffs and Super Bowl, Bet Online gives you access to the best football promotions and contests available anywhere online. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action. Remember to use our promo code BLEAV, that's B-L-E-A-V, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. Leonard, how was your week? Week was good. Week was good. I'm not, I, I don't want this all this little uh, banter. Come on. We, my week was fine. Your week was fine. We've got Mickey waiting, and a lot of people want to hear what he has to say. Here's Mickey Calloway. To make it to the major leagues is incredible. Then to earn a World Series ring as a player, amazing. How about to coach the best pitching staff in the American League on a team 
that comes within one game of winning the World Series and then to become a major league manager. That is an amazing, amazing thing to do in baseball. And our guest did that and a lot more. So we're going to talk to Mickey Calloway. We affectionately knew. We knew you when you were with the Cleveland Indians. Now they're the Guardians, but they were the Indians then. (laughs) But Jeff and I are big Met fans, so let it be known that you were the manager of our favorite team. So, Jeff, I'm going to let you start being that you are the bigger Met fan or whatever. (laughs) Go ahead. I just want Mickey to know that Mets have had about 23 managers in their in, in their existence, uh, take away the couple of interim, interim ones. So they have 20 managers, only seven had winning records, and you're one of them. So. <laughs> <Wow. Well, laughs> you no, know but I enjoyed my time there, and, and we had a great group of players there, and we saw significant improvements uh, both years I was there. So I was very proud of that. Jeff, we're going to get right back to the Mets, but let's just talk about Mickey, you. I did a search. You have a Wikipedia page. You're famous. So I saw that you actually were drafted in the out of high school in the 16th round by the San Francisco Giants. But you chose to attend college. And then thankfully, you got drafted in a higher round later. But what made you make the decision to not jump to, the, you know, not take the offer and go to college? Yeah, so um, one of the main reasons um, I got drafted so low that year is I got injured the second game of my senior year, and I didn't pitch my senior year. So I was kind of a draft and follow by the uh, San Francisco Giants. Um, I was projected to go a lot higher if I'd stayed healthy, and I and unfortunately I didn't. Um, or should I say, fortunately, because I had a, I had a great uh, experience at the University of Mississippi, um, Ole Miss, and I think I was better off for having attended college. So some things you look back on in your life, and you're like, oh man, why did that happen to me? And I think. That is one of the things in my life that uh, I was very fortunate to to have that injury and not sign right out of high school and get enough money, which I thought would have been a ton of money at the time. And now I know even if you sign for a million dollars, that can go very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, So it really benefited me to end up going to college. And I I would stress, uh, you know, unless you get life-changing money for the rest of your life that you're going to be set, that you go to college, have that unbelievable experience. Some of my best buddies that I still talk to today are from that college team there at Ole Miss. And, you know, I think it was, I was very fortunate to get hurt my senior year, although at the time I was uh, sad about it and and didn't think it was uh, any luck on on, uh, my behalf. So that's one of the main reasons I chose to go to college. I had to rehab my arm and, and start pitching again. And, you know, it worked out well for me. You were drafted again by the Devil Rays. How was the, the minor league experience? How long you made were in the minor leagues and your progression going through the leagues? And I, and I know you had your major, first major league start on June 12, 1999 against the Expos. And you pitched very well. You got the win. But tell us about your experiences leading up to your first game in the majors. So minor league baseball is definitely a interesting journey for young minor league players. And, and I really enjoyed it. I had one of the greatest coaching staffs. My first year in pro ball, I 
was fortunate enough to be just down the road here in Butte, Montana, playing for the Butte, Montana Copper Kings. And I had Howard Johnson was our hitting coach. We had Billy Hatcher, our first base coach. Dennis Rasmussen was my wow. coach. Tom Foley was the manager. I mean, it was it was unbelievable for, for a first-year pro guy to get to learn under those guys that had played the game for so long. And there's no better way to learn the game than from guys that have played for, for so long. You know, it's more than just numbers and stats and this is how you swing, that's how you swing. The mental side of the game is the most important. And guys that have been through the trenches like those guys – they can really, really help a young player improve. So I had a great journey up through the minor leagues, up to Double uh, A in Orlando. Um, actually, my my experience in Double A, I at the time we were an expansion team when I got drafted. I was in the Devil Rays first draft, and we didn't have a Double A team my second full season. So we had uh, High A, Triple A, and the Major League team. Um, we didn't have double A and I, me and uh, two other guys were ready for double A. And so they loaned us over to the Mariners and we played in Orlando with the Mariners uh, team there. And that was interesting because we had coaches from the Mariners system and our Rover would come in and check on us once a month. So I got to do that. That was a, that was a neat experience. I got to know some great guys on the Mariners in the Mariners organization at that time. And then I went on up to AAA um, in Durham, which is one of the best places you could ever play in the minor leagues. I mean, what a unbelievable experience that was to be in Raleigh, Durham and being part of the Durham Bulls. We all know the, the movie and, and <laughs> it was awesome. And we, we, we love our time there. And then fortunately, I got called up to the big leagues and had a great, great first start uh, to my career. It was kind of like making an eagle on the first hole in golf. It's all downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Mickey, you actually affected history when you were in high school because, and I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you why. You're gonna, like, what is he talking about? I <laughs> come on this baseball and barbecue podcast. And <laughs> but you did not take the San Francisco Giants offer. When you played for the Angels, you played the Giants in the World Series. You won four games to three. Do you realize that if the Giants had drafted you and you went to the Giants, the Giants would have won the World Series that year? We might have. I would have cheered (laughs) them instead of the uh, Angels. (laughs) (laughs) So it's very interesting because you have players who who play during a season. Uh, on a team that goes to the World Series. And you're not the first player who wasn't uh, did not play in the postseason or wasn't on the roster of, of the postseason. There have been other players that of recent memory, and of course I can't remember who, but but they spend a lot of the season helping the team. But how did you feel uh, you being competitive, you wanted to be on that roster or play in the postseason? Yeah, so, so this is an interesting story. And I'm sure a lot of fans don't understand how this works. Obviously, you can only have so many people on your roster during the playoffs and the World Series, and uh, they have to make some tough decisions. And and going into the season, I was our fifth starter. And usually during the um, playoffs, you only, you know, use four starters. 
And uh, I remember Mike Sosha calling me in and saying, hey, look, we're going to leave you off the roster, but you and three other guys are going to travel with the team because if somebody gets hurt, then they can activate us. So I was I was ecstatic that I was even going to get to, you know, be there on the bench during the playoffs um, at that time and and help out in between. Um, I would throw live BPs to our hitters and, and try to get them ready, you know, also keep me ready in case I got activated. But I remember in between, I guess the league championship series and the world series, we had a, a little bit of an extended break. And uh, I went out there and faced our guys just so they could see some live pitching. I think I threw like 85 pitches in a row without resting. <laughs> so wow. that, that was my contribution. Uh, you know, I tried to keep Tim Salmon and Scott Spezio and those guys on point uh, to try to let them see some live pitching in between that little bit of a break. But, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing. And, you know, just to be part of that team during the season and get to sit in the dugout, which not everybody got to, was special to me. And, you know, it doesn't lessen it. Um, obviously I would have loved to have been out there pitching game seven, uh, like John Lackey did, but, uh, you know, it wasn't the case and I, and I felt, feel fortunate for it. Right. Right. And you mentioned that you played for Mike Sosha. You also played for Larry Rothschild and for Buck Schulter. played for Mike Sosha, Buck Schulter, and Larry Rothschild. So how did you take their style into your managing style? Yeah, I used a lot of uh, what those guys offered for sure. You know, I think Mike Sosha, his game strategy, the way he liked to run the bases, we were one of the best base running teams in the league when I played for the Angels. And it was because that was one thing Mike Sosa stressed more than anything. Go first to third, get that extra base. So uh, that was something I really took away from Mike. Um, you know, Buck is super organized. I mean, this guy... He has, well, I remember having countdown, countdown clocks um, the first day of spring training. It was counting down the hours, minutes, and seconds to opening day in the locker room when you're with Buck. Um, so he, he was always super prepared. Um, and Larry, Larry, we called him Uncle Larry. He has this really laid back managerial style. And I think it resonated well with the guys. Um, and also, I think, being around Larry at that point in my career, being a pitcher, and he was a pitching guy, an ex-pitching coach, I was like, oh, you know what? I don't have to just be a pitching coach because I, I kind of knew the whole time I was playing I was going to be a coach someday because I wasn't a very good pitcher. <laughs> so <laughs> play as long as I can, gain as much experience as I can so I can be a, an effective coach someday. But, uh, you know, seeing Larry – um, in the dugout, in the managerial seat, you know, is one of the things that kind of planted a seed. Hey, I, I, you know, I can be a manager one day if I want to. Um, so you definitely take your st your style from from everybody you've ever been around, from your high school coach to Bill Evers, who was my AAA manager for five years. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in, in AAA. I think I'm the uh, Durham Bulls all time winningest uh, pitcher, which is not something you want to be, but. <laughs> But I had a great experience there with Bill and, and Durham. And, you know, we had Ron Renicky, We had uh, Joe Madden and on our staff there in uh, Anaheim. So I got to be around a lot of guys. Uh, Buddy Black was the pitching coach. And all those guys got to manage in the big leagues. Well, that's, that's great. And I want to get to your pitching coach career in a, in a minute. But you played five years in the major leagues uh, with, like I said, the Rays, Angels and, and Rangers. And then you went overseas to Korea and you played a, a year in China. 
How's that experience playing baseball outside of the United States? You know, it, it's it's a different experience. One that I cherish. I loved it. I had the the best time in Korea and in Taiwan. And I think the the main takeaway from me was it it really. And I didn't realize this at the time when I was playing in the minor leagues or in the major leagues, but it's not as easy as everybody thinks to go to a different country and play. And I think that really helped me when I was coaching because I could kind of identify with all those guys that aren't from the U.S. that have to come over here. And it doesn't matter how much money you make. You know, I was making pretty good money over in Korea, but it's still it's still tough being away from your family and, you know, being so far away from your home country, you know, they do it, they do it well, but yeah, I think it really helped me identify with some of the players that I had and, and some of the things they might've been going through um, off the field to, to try and help them mentally on the field to have success. You know, Mickey, when you became Mets manager and the way you described your managerial style, and I was guilty of this. I, I thought, oh, this manager is, uh, you know, kumbaya. <laughs> Everybody, we all love each other. But so you you were a player's manager. And then there were disciplinary managers. And then what happens is teams get too comfortable, right? They say, oh, now they need to have a disciplinarian. And then they get sick of that and they go back to a player's manager. But is that a conscious de- decision you make? Or is that just your personality? That's the kind of manager I am. And I'm not going to change it. You know, I think that I am a very positive person. I look at the positive side of everything. And I think you have to do this in a sport like baseball because a baseball is a grind. And and if you're not positive and take the positives out of uh, things every day, then then you can get in that, you know, headspace that you don't want to be in and things can go down in a hurry. But, you know, the one conscious decision I made was to always protect my players and to always show the positivity to the fans and the media. And I did plenty of disciplining behind the scenes and and nobody needed to know what I was doing or, you know, if I was getting on somebody. And that was a thing that I kept between me and a player. And, and I think that's the way you have to do it. You know, I wasn't going to blame anybody in the media or show anybody up on the field because that's not beneficial to what you're trying to do. And what you're trying to do is win every night and keep your players playing the game with energy and positivity, even when things are going bad. And, you know, if you start throwing players under the bus in the media and showing them up on the field and, and you know, kind of scowling in the dugout, I don't think that's beneficial. So, you know, I did play. Plenty of disciplining behind the scenes that uh, nobody knows about. But, you know, I am a positive guy and and I try to uh, steer people in the right direction no matter what is going on. Yeah. You know, Mickey, I think a lot of fans don't understand what a pitching coach does during a ball game or before a ball game. Could you explain what, what they do? I mean, I know there's people who think they oh, a pitch, the pitching staff's not doing well. Get rid of the pitching coach. I mean, right. Leo Mozzoni was a, a great pitching coach, but he but he had. Maddox, Schmoltz, and Glavin. I mean, <laughs> and you had Kluber and Bauer and Carrasco when he was coming up. So describe what a, a pitching coach does for a team. Yeah. So the first thing, you know, you are as good as your players, whether you're a manager, a pitching coach, a hitting coach, or whatever. You know, your players are a reflection of, uh, you know, 
or you're a reflection of how your players are, are performing at the time. But as a pitching coach or a hitting coach or a manager, you know, we get there at the field at 11 o'clock every day. We try to prepare. We we look through every pitcher. What do I need to stress with this guy today? You know, usually have 11, 12 guys. And what do I need? What kind of conversation do I need to have with this guy? This guy's throwing a bullpen today. What do we need to work on? You're preparing all that time. You're having advanced meetings, going over the hitters. And that's one of the things I thought I specialized in was being able to do research on the opponent and being able to deliver the message on how we wanted to attack really well. Now, your players, your pitchers still have to go out there and do it and be able to make pitches that that you want them to make. And and I had the I was fortunate enough to have those guys that could do that. Like you said, the Corey Klubers, the Carrascos, who was unbelievable when I had him and, and Bauer. But, you know, that's that's something that a lot of people don't see. You know, we don't just sit there with a towel and hand them the rosin when they need it. We do do that. And we are their caddy at times. But we try to get them in the in the right headspace and try to prepare them to go out there and be able to use the knowledge that we told them and not confuse things when they're on the mound. Right, right. If you can do me a favor, give uh, Carl Carrasco a call because he's having the, some trouble here in New York these days. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I've seen I've seen some of that, and I feel for the guy because he he is one of the best human beings I've ever been around. I mm-hmm. love it so much. I mean. To me, when when you get to know a guy like that, I could care less if he pitches well or not. He he he's he's going to be one of my favorites of all time. You know, he's he's just a great human being. Sure, I, and and I know he is. I mean, I, but fans expect so much. Oh um, yeah, good. Which that's what I loved about New York. It was so New York on a daily basis on a Sunday or a Tuesday in the middle of the week is like playing in the playoffs in Cleveland. Every single day. I loved it. it was, the energy was amazing. <laughs> I got to ask you one more coaching question. Why is the magic number 100 pitches or six innings? I mean, I see when pitchers are pulled after 100 pitches, but not stressful pitches. I mean, they might work around a, a batter, walk them. But why is 100 pitches like the magic number? So it, it seemed like back in the day when when people started getting injured, you know, nobody got injured when they were throwing 160 pitches and throwing 15 innings. <laughs> you know, those guys pitched forever, but they didn't throw, you know, quite as hard, or at least a majority of them didn't quite throw as hard. You know, you had your Bob Fellers and and guys like that that stood out and probably threw 15 miles per hour harder than everybody else. But, you know, I think what really happened is injuries started to happen. And then all of a sudden, the doctors and the physical therapists got involved and they were like, hey, look, let's limit the pitches and see if this helps. We did a lot of research when I was with Cleveland and all of the guys that pitched for 15 years in the big leagues and stayed healthy, they threw a lot of pitches in the minor leagues. They weren't on these pitch counts. So when I was with the Cleveland Indians, we didn't have as strict pitch counts as, as everybody else. And our guys stayed pretty healthy. But you know, I think it's the doctors got involved. And now what has happened is the front offices and the analytics department is really getting involved. And their philosophy is no matter who it is that comes out of the pen, even if he's your sixth best reliever, 
he might be a better option than the starter once the starter gets to 85 pitches and on, or at least that third time through. You hear that all the time now. Oh, don't let the starter pitch the third time through because all the evidence points to even if you're you know throwing one of your worst relievers, he's still a better option because the hitter hadn't seen him in that third time through. So, you know, I think that takes its toll. I don't know if, if you guys remember, but I tried to extend our, our starters as long as I could when I was the manager there in New York. One, because our bullpen wasn't quite performing the way we wanted to, but two, we had really good starting pitchers. And I, and I always thought, Jacob DeGrom, Noah Syndergaard, Zach Wheeler, those guys are a better option than uh, <laughs> somebody else that might be in that bullpen towards the back of it. So, but, it, you know, it's kind of evolved for different reasons. And I don't love it, but, uh, you know, I think that's the way the game has, uh, has gone. So, Mickey, you came from Cleveland to New York. And I know I looked at some stories from back then. And, you felt like you were ready for it. I think there was something I saw because you had just been in the playoffs in the World Series, uh, but not the World Series, but the playoffs. Yes, sorry, you were in the World Series. And you mentioned how that month of postseason was like every day in New York. When you get to New York, though, do you have to make, I know, like WFAN, you do regular segments on. Is there? Does it get crazy when you get to New York? That's, that's what I want to know. Yeah, it really does. And and it can be a distraction because you're so busy, you know, and, and the main thing as a manager is you want to be able to have some time for your players throughout the day. You know, you're there at 1030. I was there at 1030, 11 o'clock in the morning. And, uh, you know, the players start showing up about 2, 2.30, sometimes 3 o'clock. And I'm already with the press and and doing interviews and things like that. So I didn't have a ton of time uh, before the game to sit down and have those one-on-one chats that I wanted to. But Gary DeSarcina and Jim Riggleman, they did a great job of trying to curtail some of that for me and grab a player here and have a conversation there. Um, you know, something we we would talk about before the players arrived. But and I tried to be as available as I could. You know, one thing I always tried to do was throw the first group of BP so I could kind of get away from the press and go out on the field. I'd throw the first group of batting practice uh, to those guys, and then I'd kind of be available for them around the shell while they were hitting to, to have a chat or two. And, you know, you had sometimes after the games, you'd, you'd have a little time after you did the press. But but uh, that was a big part of managing in New York that, you know, if you're in Boston, you're in New York, places like that, you have those responsibilities. And if you're in Cleveland, you got two beat writers. It lasts 10 minutes throughout the day where right. you know, I'm, I'm, I think I was spending four hours a day doing that kind of stuff. So uh, it's definitely a, a different kind of challenge. But it was one that uh, that I really enjoyed. You know, I loved talking to those those guys. The, the press is in New York is so passionate about the team. And, you know, there's never a lack of drama because of uh, the press <laughs> and, and articles the day before. And so that is uh, something that's always exciting. Getting up in the morning, reading the articles. OK, how can I smooth this over with this guy? You know, don't worry about what's being said. Let's just go out there and play. So so it adds a whole nother dynamic to baseball that uh, is, is very exciting. Now, when you came to the Mets in 2017, so in 2015, they had been in the World Series. And what's always difficult is to replace the star player on a team. 
you know, it was going to be difficult for whoever, whoever replaced Jeter, you know, whoever replaced Mariano. So unbelievably, Terry Collins was a beloved manager when he retired. And yep. he had come in just to basically hold it, the place. Right, right. Team. But a very difficult situation. You came in and you replaced Terry Collins. Didn't replace him. He retired. But they then you were 11 and 1 to start. Yeah. You know, we, we, was, we had a great start both years. We came out of the spring training clicking pretty good. And, and those, that was fun. You know, it, it, yeah. uh, it was uh, something that at the time, you know, was very exciting. Um, you see 11 and one and you know, wait a minute, this is baseball. 11 and one doesn't happen very often, even you <laughs> no. know, in the middle of the season. So, you know, you, you kind of get put it back in your place really quick. And then, uh, you know, you just keep on doing your job and realize that, hey, we we're fortunate enough to be 11 and one, but we got work to do, guys. We can't just rest on that 11 and one because that can change in a hurry. And it actually did that year and which we, we had to bounce back from that. Yeah, you had uh, the best pitcher on the planet that year and the following year, and Jacob DeGrom, DeGrom I mean, 1.70 ERA in 2018. That's incredible. That must have been very easy to manage him. It was. You know, I don't think he was just the best pitcher on the planet at that time. He might have been the best pitcher on the planet ever that year. I've never seen anything like it. The way the ball came out of his hand, you know, basically you just left him out there until he couldn't go anymore. You know, it was the easy decision. <laughs> out of the game no matter what was going on and there was never anything going on during the game because they couldn't hit him we couldn't hit either you know i remember we we didn't give him much run support and i remember joel sherman asking me a question like is it a mental thing now for the team when jacob pitches that you guys aren't scoring runs and looking back on that i don't remember what my answer was at the time but i think this is the answer i think our hitters stood on the field and watch Jacob DeGrom face guys and make them look silly and make them look like they didn't have a chance. And they're in the back of their mind going, man, hitting's really hard, you know, and, and that mm-hmm. was just, and when they went up there, it made it even more difficult. So it, it was crazy how good Jacob was and is. I mean, the stuff is electric. You know, you watch him from day one in spring training and the ball just jumps out of his hand he is built like a pitcher. Everything about him screams, you know, best pitcher on the planet. Right, right. And also on that team, you had, uh, you know, Zach Wheeler, another very good pitcher. Noah Syndergaard, you know, when uh, you know, I feel bad for him now. He's, having, he's struggling now trying to get back to his old form, but he was really good. And Stephen Matz was a, a very good pitcher as well. Yeah, he was. You know, we we had a great starting staff and it was fun to be around those guys and watch those guys every day. The, uh, you know, Zach Wheeler, I compared him a lot to Carlos Carrasco when I had Carrasco. You know, Carrasco was this big time uh, prospect. He was going to be a can't miss guy. And then he gets up to the big leagues and he struggles for a few years. And then, you know, the thing about Zach and the thing about Carlos to me is they have to feel comfortable. You have to uh, be really laid back with them. Hey, go out there, do what you do, and then you're going to have some success. You know, they start putting pressure on themselves and things can snowball on them. And I'm sure that's happened with Carrasco right now. He's probably going, oh, man, I got to perform for the team. I got to perform for the fans. And he puts a lot of pressure on himself. And it's hard to 
to kind of get out of that uh, snowball effect. Uh, and and uh, both of those guys were able to do it and establish themselves in the major leagues and go on and have some great seasons. You know, the thing about Carrasco that people don't know is he came very close to winning a Cy Young for about three years in a row. Um, he was that good. You know, he just had Corey Kluber in front of him. Um, <laughs> kind of notice and and the same thing with Zach when when you have DeGrom in front of you Zach was very very good and is still continuing to pitch well in Philly sure is you know it just shows you Mickey with with pitching with it's it's on that frail arm you could have a great year one year DeGrom Cy Young and the next year you can't throw so it's it's amazing these guys I used to I used to go to the Hall of Fame or you know talk about compilers i was always of the ah, they're just compilers but you know what you got to have a lot of respect for somebody who gets on the field every day and is able to put up stats year after year that's a that's a big deal oh absolutely and it's not an easy thing to do because you're pitching through some things that most guys can't pitch through when you when you're a compiler like you said but uh, to be able to go out there and throw 200 innings a year for 15 years straight that's a tough feat I mean, and I don't think you're really going to see it anymore because they're pulling guys so early but it's tough to stay healthy that's one of the main things um, I tried to do as a pitching coach is keep guys healthy and we had a lot of success doing that in Cleveland and and with the Mets because we put them on these free throwing routines that really woke their bodies up every day before they played catch. We never allowed them just to go out there and just kind of do this and stretch a little bit and and start throwing. We really had a good routine for them. And and that really helped guys stay healthy. Mickey, when you were manager, you had Dave Ireland as your pitching coach. You have a pitching coach background. Did you ever get involved with the pitching uh, or did you leave just all that to Dave Ireland? So, so Dave, Dave was my mentor with the Durham Bulls. He was the veteran on the team and he helped me so much. And Dave and I discussed pitching all the time and we discussed our players all the time, but no, that was Dave. Dave Island helped Zach Wheeler. Dave Island helped Jacob DeGrom. He's one of the best pitching coaches I've ever been around. And it's a shame he's not in the big leagues as a pitching coach right now. I think he's in double A or something uh, somewhere. But he's one of the best guys out there. And I have the utmost respect for Dave Island. You know, he is a guy that grinds it out every day. He was a grinder in the minor leagues. He grinded out his major league career and have some, some decent success with very minimal stuff. I don't know if you ever got to see Dave pitch for the Yankees, maybe when yeah, I mean, him at the Yankees, yeah. Throwing 95, he was throwing, you know, 88 and executing pitches. And he knows the game of baseball. He knows pitching very well. And I have the utmost respect for him. So I really was able to just to go, hey, look, I gotta do all this media and handle the managing. You go, you go take care of the pitchers. And and he he was outstanding. We had a couple of great seasons on the mound. Mickey, they say that uh, players are getting hurt now because they just, every pitch, they go 100%. They throw as hard as they can for as long as they can. Now, as a pitching coach, this was something you had to deal with. How how do you stop your, and you kept them healthy. So how do you stop them from just every pitch throwing all they've got? Yeah, so, you, you know, you have to show them that throwing max effort, and I don't know if you guys play golf, but when you go back and you swing as hard as you can in golf 
and you miss that sweet spot by a fraction of an inch, the ball doesn't go as far. And pitching is the same way. If you're overthrowing and you miss that release point by just a half inch, the ball's not going to come out the way you want to. So you have to explain to them, hey, look, stay nice, loose, and relaxed. Get the effort level that's going to allow you to throw your max speed without putting a ton of pressure on your arm by using your abs and your your lower half to deliver the ball to home. You know, that's one thing about Trevor Bauer. He's a big mechanics guy, and he's not a very big guy, and he doesn't have very big muscles in his arms and stuff, but he's got very strong legs, and he knows how to use his body efficiently to deliver the ball to home. And it, and it and you know it, it looks like he's using a ton of effort, but he's really not. That's more of a competitive thing. You see Max Scherzer out there looking like a beast and and throwing. It looks like he's throwing as hard as he can, but they're really not. That's more of their on mound persona. Clayton Kershaw is the same way. You know, they just know how to do it and use their body the right way. And you can stay healthy if you have those routines that we talked about earlier, because it doesn't matter what effort level you're using. If you don't have good pre-pitch and pre-throwing routines, you're going to end up getting injured because this is the game of baseball and and it takes its toll because you're doing an unnatural motion. Absolutely. Uh, one, one or two more, and we really appreciate your time. The general yeah, manager who hired you was uh, Sandy Alderson, and then they, he had he had his uh, health issues, and then in came Brody Van Wagenen. Different styles, different way they treated the uh, – players the the front office tell us about that 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 change in administration yeah definitely a different different styles um obviously sandy is the salt of the earth i mean there's no better guy to be around than sandy alderson who is so knowledgeable in every way not just about baseball one of the brightest guys i've ever been around very calm demeanor stern when he needs to be i was very you know, sad when when everything went down with him, with his his cancer coming back, and because I, I care for for Sandy tremendously, and and a lot of people in baseball do, which is one of the reasons he he came back to the Mets. You know, that's a lot of onus to put on on a man. To it's basically, hey, we'll let Steve Cohen be the manager as long as you have Sandy Alderson there to keep things on the straight and narrow, and that's a a credit to Sandy and who he is and, and the type of person he is. And then Brody Wagonen came in and this guy is one of the most, he, he's uh, again, one of the, the smartest people I've ever been around and he had energy and passion and he had a different way with the players because he's used to being an agent and he had never done this before, you know, t- to be a guy that gets to come visit the clubhouse occasionally as an agent, and maybe sit in the stands and see the players after the game. And then all of a sudden you're in it every day on the field, in the clubhouse. He did, he did a tremendous job in my opinion. You know, he made some great trades. I thought he acquired some really good players, you know, to step in. We, we had back then winning seasons weren't coming easy for the Mets. You know, I think there had been two in 13 years and, and they still are. I mean, look at look at what's going on this year. It's tough yeah. to win there, um, yeah. but you do. And to come in as a first year general manager and win eighty six games, you know, there was this thing I saw on online that that year 
was the third best season that the Mets had had in 20 years. If you look at the competition level in the league and, and the, the strength of schedule and stuff, we, so we, that was a pretty good team. And, and we, we won 86 games in a, in a very, very tough, uh, with a very tough schedule and a very tough division. I just have uh, two more questions to ask you and we'll let you go. And we, again, we thank you for your time. Two people I want to ask you about. You managed Pete Alonzo in his first season. That was tremendous. I remember going to Cincinnati that, that year on a, on a road trip and I saw him hit number 50 and he, he booked a rookie record that year. Yeah. He is a great kid. You know, he was still learning the game, really still learning first base at the time. So to be able to go out there and swing the bat the way he did his rookie season while still having some, you know, some of those tough times at first base and learning that position really well was amazing. You know, he didn't let the the stuff in the field bother him at the plate or the stuff at the plate bother him in the field. He is such a focused guy that uh, it was a pleasure to be around him. Talk about a positive guy. That guy, it could be the worst day ever, and he's going to take a positive out of it. And, and I really like seeing that. And I think that's one of the things that's allowed him to be so successful at such a young age at the major leagues because that is not an easy thing to do, you know, no matter how big of a prospect you are. You know, you see, you know, the Beatties of the world and the guys that are can't-miss guys, and they get up there and they struggle. You know, Pete really wasn't a can't-miss guy. He was just, uh, you know, oh, maybe he has a chance and and he gets up there and does what he did and he's still continuing to do it. I know he's going through a rough patch right now, but I guarantee you he's there's nobody working harder than him in the cage um, at the field early. And he's a he's a pleasure to be around. Yeah, great. And and we've had a few Mets on, on our show before and every Met has a story on Jay Harwood. So you have to have one. So please let us know. <laughs> oh, my God. Jay, I have, I, I can't even, I mean, it was a, it was a comedy show every day, whether Jay's like, he's sitting there, he's sleeping in a meeting or he's wandering around like he's lost. That guy is one of the nicest human beings I've ever been around. And he's never, he, I think he, he's, he's a met for life. He's never going to not be at that stadium as long as he's alive. Uh, I love being around him. He had a great way with the media. The media really respected him because he did such a great job. But Jay, you know, he, I think he was, he was sleeping one time during one of my uh, scrums or something, but he, he's a, he's a great guy. Mickey, pitching coach or manager, if you had to pick a favorite. I like man. Without a doubt, I like managing, especially in New York. It was ex- like I said, it was the playoffs every single day, and that's what you want to be around. You want to be around that energy. You want to be held accountable. You know, I, I didn't care that people booed me. You know, if if we weren't winning, we all deserve to be booed. That's how it should be. These people, these fans, they pay a ton of money, way too much money to go to a game. In my opinion, I think it's sad how much a person has to pay to take their family to go see America's pastime. That's a travesty in my opinion, but they spend their hard earned money. And if they want to boo, they can boo and they deserve, we deserve to be booed when we're not winning. That's what we signed up for. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. You know, I was booing myself inside. It was tough to not win. I hated it. You know, it's funny. I have to disagree with you. 
I disagree. I, I think, yes, the fans pay for the ticket. I, I mean, I guess if they want to boo, what I get frustrated with, I never boo, but what I get frustrated with is if a player doesn't, you know, run out a ball or if, you know, they lollygag around the bases or whatever. But if, but if they're trying, I, I'm not going to boo it, them. It's my team. And, and it's, you know, you're doing the best you can. And it's just, it's tough out there. So, so I no. disagree. You it, do it, not, you should not be booed. <laughs> it is a tough game, but the thing we didn't hit on is when you're winning, nobody cheers louder. Right. So you, you can't right. have it both ways. You know, you, if you want to get cheered really well, when you, when you're going <laughs> the best, they're the best fans on the planet. So if you want to get cheered on better than anybody else, you gotta, you gotta take the other side of the coin as well. well. He's a fan. always <laughs> <laughs> oh, a fan. That's, that's, you, you're talking. That's what fans would do or say. <laughs> Mick, I have one yeah. last one. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, no how's problem. The, how, how's the barbecue down in Mississippi? Mm. The barbecue is okay, but I'm from Memphis, Tennessee originally. Ah. So I'm from the best barbecue on the planet. There you go. <laughs> and, you know, Jim Neely's barbecue and Third Street. I mean, we have the best barbecue. And if you're, if you're using vinegar-based sauce, you're doing it wrong. And if you're not <laughs> flaw on your sandwich, you're also doing it wrong. So uh, best barbecue in the world in Memphis, Tennessee, in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> hey, you know what? I didn't know we were going to talk barbecue. Okay. Vicky, you got another hour? <laughs> <laughs> With, so is it sauce? No. So I know you said if it's the vinegar sauce, it's no good. But what's the what's the sauce of choice there? I think we do like more of a honey-based uh, uh, sauce. Mm -hmm. It is fantastic. You know, it's a little bit thicker. You know, it stays on the on the barbecue, in between the barbecue and the slaw and the bun, and it doesn't just run off and look all greasy on the plate like the Kansas City barbecue or wherever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's funny because slaw, like I like a good uh like a pastrami sandwich with coleslaw on top. That's a I, and on rye bread, it's a good sandwich. Absolutely. With some thousand island dressing, <laughs> a little different than than the sandwiches there. But so, do you have? Are you cooking? Do you cook? Uh, do you make barbecue? I do. I cook a lot. I'm not the best barbecuer on the on the planet, but I can grill a mean steak and hamburger. Barbecue takes too long for me, and I think I'm a little too impatient. I got to get on to the next thing, but uh, you have to slow cook that barbecue to get it right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I know when I tell people, you know, I, I had somebody I work with and they said, um, they said, I need to know how to how to make the ribs. And I said, all right, well, you do this and then you leave them on for like, you know, four to five hours. What are you <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so I'll just you pay know. for it. They, they can't believe it. I mean, people don't that don't barbecue or, or don't know about it. When they hear how long the meat is on for, they don't believe it. That's right. Do you, so do you ever? So you you're not a big smoker. No, I don't. I don't uh, smoke my meat uh, very much. Uh, you know, I've done it one time. My ribs turned out just so so. But like mm -hmm. I said, I just time to sit there for four or five hours. I gotta. I gotta be. <laughs> 
around and doing a project or or something. So, uh, you know, like I said, I'll go to a barbecue place for my ribs. <laughs> well, you're in the no. area for it, yeah, right? So, exactly. you know, well, not now, but but you <laughs> you you were. So I, I get it. That's it. Anyway, that it does that conclude our barbecue talk, Jeff? I, I think so. <laughs> we gotta let Mickey go. Mickey, thank you so much for joining we, us. We really appreciate it. And it was fascinating talking to you. Thanks, Jeff. Thank appreciate thank it. That was Hi, this is Gary Mack of the Mets Musings Podcast. And if you like barbecue and you like baseball, then you have to listen to baseball and BBQ with Jeff and Lynn. They always have the best guests from the world of baseball and the world of barbecue, all in one little package. So check it out. Baseball and BBQ with Len and Jeff. Okay, guys, take it away. And thank you, Mickey, for joining us on Baseball and BBQ. He uh, was up there in where? Was he in Wisconsin or Montana? He was in Montana. Yeah, in a, in a cabin. I mean, you know, I know... I want to thank him. That was quite, quite something. And uh, thank you very much, Mickey. Yeah, we appreciate definitely. it. Yes. Jeff, you have so many things for us. You you start it the way you want to start it. Go ahead. Well, I have my two cents. Not a rant, but your two cents. My two cents. This week's two cents concerns Tommy John surgeries. Tommy John surgeries used to be only for pitchers. And by now, you know, it's become more and more frequent. In fact, there are some pitchers who have two Tommy John surgeries. Jacob deGrom, for example. We've been hearing about analytics, about pitch counts and inning limits to keep the pitcher in top form and to keep them healthy a full season. But have these analytical geniuses noticed that injuries have not decreased? More and more injuries are happening. And to the layperson, we know it's because the pitchers throw as hard as they can for as long as they can. But now offensive players are getting Tommy John surgery. Bryce Harper last season. Jason Dominguez, the rookie for the Yankees who was brought up September 1st, now needs Tommy John surgery. In the past, did you know Jose Canseco, Carl Crawford, Aaron Hicks, Todd Hundley, and Hall of Famer Paul Malter had Tommy John surgeries? Why is Tommy John surgeries happening for position players? Is it because they're swinging as hard as they can for their exit velocity? One thing for sure. The problem is not going away. And that's my two cents. I'm really enjoying these two cents. Really? Yeah. They're not worth a nickel. I know they're not worth a nickel. I know it. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give you the two cents. No, Jeff, very well said. And by the way, Shoei Otani, you know, the DH for the Angels. Yes. He just had his second, Tommy John. Well, they, you know, Len, I, not that I can dispute you. But there, there's a little difference of opinion with whether it's actually Tommy John surgery or not. He did have some type of procedure, okay. but no one is classifying that as Tommy John surgery. Could it be? We know he's not going to be pitching in 2024. He'll be hitting, but he won't be pitching. So who who knows? Wow. Isn't he still the resp- responsibility of the Angels? They should know what's going on with him, right? For another week and a half, yes. <laughs> and by the way, he's going to win the MVP. Well, he had some kind of procedure, and uh, I'm wondering if it's not Tommy John, but maybe they just call it TJ. Maybe. Yeah, TJ. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so now you gave us your two cents. You give us another thing. 
It's time for the baseball quote of the week. I played my best every day. You never know when someone may be seeing you for the first time. That's Jolton Joe DiMaggio. Wow, Joey D. I love the baseball quotes. Probably a lot more baseball quotes than barbecue quotes. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Jeff. And let's remind everybody, everybody, baseballbbq.com is it's a website. Look, you spend time on the internet. Just go to baseballbbq.com. Grilling tools and accessories shape, shaped like made of baseball bat handles. I mean, if you if you had a, you know, if you need to swing the, uh, well, the t you won't hit anything with it, but baseball bat handles, cutting boards shaped like home plate and jerseys. You could get anything you want engraved on them. Baseballbbq.com. And now, Jeff, you want to let people know how to contact the show? Sure. Give us a call. 516-855-8214. Email us. Baseball and BBQ at gmail.com. Visit our website, www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. We have a Facebook, Baseball and BBQ. Leave a comment there. We are on the X or the Twitter at Baseball and BBQ. And we have Instagram, Baseball and Barbecue, where the barbecue is all spelled out. So please, please rate, review, follow, subscribe, tell your friends, do all that. You know what I love, Jeff? We've basically done a whole podcast and we still have a wonderful, wonderful barbecue-themed interview discussion with Brian Lee of BT Lee's Sauces and Rubs. Everybody enjoy. We are joined on Baseball and Barbecue by a maker of Sauces and Rubs. We want to thank our good friend Ray Sheehan for bringing him to our attention. And actually, I, I've seen all his social media. We didn't need to, to be brought to his attention, but I'm just glad that he's joining us. His sauces and rubs are outstanding. And I think you're in for a treat because I've been doing a little stalking and I think this man has some stories to tell. He is from Ohio. So, Jeff, you're in trouble. <laughs> he doesn't live there now, but he's from Ohio. We are pleased to present and, and welcome to Baseball and Barbecue, Brian Lee of BT Lee's Sauces and Rubs. Welcome, Brian. Hey, everybody. Pleasure to meet you guys. <laughs> Brian, do you go by BT or do you like Brian? My friends call me Brian. All Everyone right. else kind of knows me as BT, and, and I hear BT so often I answer to it anymore. So, Jeff, you call him BT, and I'm going to call him Brian. All right? You got it. You I'll, got answer, it. I'll answer to both. <laughs> My head will whip around. Uh, so, you know, it's funny. I just, I, I was saying I was doing some stalking and, you know, research, but mm -hmm. I happen to hear you on an, an episode of uh, Barbecue Nation. That's how I knew you were from Ohio originally. Right, right. And uh, you're a big, uh, we're going to get to the sauces and rubs, obviously, but you're a uh, Cleveland fan, the Cleveland Browns. Right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think I was born with a, with a football in the cradle, like most of us in Northeast Ohio. We didn't really, we weren't really given a choice, but even if I was given a choice, I think I'd still do it because I, I was weaned on the, um, the Kozar era of, of Cleveland. Ah, Bernie. Okay. So, I remember all of the heartaches that came right at the end 
of that yeah and i remember when they tore down tore down the the muni and and uh, you know bill belichick shipped kozar to dallas and you know we had vinnie testaverde doing his thing and and all that jazz are you a guardians fan as well i am i am but i'm gonna i'm gonna be real real honest i don't really have that much time for baseball anymore but yes i am i'm a guardians fan i was uh I was regaling a story of of actually going to the first to opening day at the Jake back when it was Jacobs Field and remembering the statue of Bob Feller right out there in front. It gotcha. was a beautiful day. Gotcha. All right. So we're going to get to the sauces and rubs, which you are well known for. I know Jeff and I have been using it. Tell us your origin story. How does someone who... I heard you 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 were in the music business at one point, but how do you become someone in the sauce and rub business, which is a tough business to be in? Oh, it it is a it is a tough game. It's pretty brutal out there. So I started with my my girlfriend, now wife, purchasing a El Cheapo Brinkman grill. It was mm-hmm. one of those like twenty two inch thirty five dollar pieces of work from Lowe's and it had a smokestack, had the chimney, had had kind of like an offset thing. I cut the grill grates down the center. I built a firewall and I decided to smoke a brisket and I ruined it. I absolutely trashed this thing. It was shoe leather. And, uh, and what we ended up doing was I took some beef stock and I reconstituted it and I served it on bagels. A bagels? Bagels. Yeah. You yeah. know, uh, ba- uh, bagel, cream <laughs> cheese, brisket right? Maybe some jalapenos on top of it. And uh, I ended up taking it to work the next day. And I was working in tech at the time. And, you know, a lot of my, a lot of my coworkers didn't know much about food. Like they knew they liked food, but they didn't know how to cook food or anything like that. So we, they loved it. And they were like, you should do this more often. So I started doing it more often. And uh, what ended up happening was, is we, we would stand up a, um, a sign-up sheet every Thursday and I, you know, would say what kind of protein you want and whatever protein won, everybody that signed up was social agreement to purchase that the following Monday when I'd show up with pounds of it in the poundage that they wanted. So every Monday morning, I'd show up with anywhere between 15 to 40 pounds of barbecue and sell wow. it to my coworkers. And instead of them eating Arby's all week, they ate me. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah. What what actually what eventually happened was um I started getting asks for sauces. I was I was kind of like kitchen sinking sauces, like I had no recipes. I would just do stuff for fun, you know, and I'd show up with it. And then uh eventually people's family started asking for sauces. Hey, are you free to do this birthday party? Hey, would you do this homecoming party? Would you do this graduation party? And then that culminated in uh, my wife and I having our our wedding, and we did a surprise barbecue wedding. And oh, she really, yeah, that was that was fun to orchestrate. I'll tell you what, we did 70, 75 guests at a pavilion in uh, in Northeast Ohio at one of the state parks. Seven of them knew, and they were all from out of town. So we, uh, but you got pictures of me. Smoking, I smoked two briskets, eight pork butts, like seven racks of ribs, and we did all the sides and everything for it and made like a hundred 
small little four ounce containers of barbecue sauce as party favors or <laughs> as, uh, as the wedding gifts for it. Oh. Wedding favors. You know, my wife's a designer, so like all of them had labels on them like love is stupid and that was the spicy version or love is sweet and that was the sweet version of the barbecue sauce she likes to joke that that was the launch party of uh of bt lee's sauces and rubs sure why not why not well <laughs> let's let's talk about rubs for a second because we used sure. the uh, i used some the other night and it was very good and i see you have uh, maybe i'm counting about what seven types of rubs is that is that right so we've got our five uh, five mainstay rubs, five main lines, uh, something for rubbing, sweet and savory barbecue, something to cry about, hot and spicy version of that, uh, something to cluck about, which is a, my citrus herb combination, kind of like Thanksgiving in a bottle. We've got the something mm-hmm. to beef about, full of uh, umami flavors with dried porcini mushrooms and all that kind of stuff. And then we've got our taco seasoning, uh, which is is a huge, huge fan favorite. Like we get people buy the bakes of it from us all the time on that. But we started doing, I started doing seasonal blends because I wanted to be more creative with my, my creations, you know, like the stuff that stays in the line for retail and wholesale is like the tried and true stuff that's been vetted. My seasonal blends though, I can kind of play a little off the cuff on it and see where it goes. Like, um, for summer. I did uh, our something for summer rub this year is a strawberry honey Dijon blend with a lot of tarragon and basil uh, that went over like gangbusters. Uh, I say, I say it went over well, but then some for autumn dropped, which is a warm apple bourbon. And that's outpaced it in sale drastically. Someone described it as walking into a cracker barrel, eating a fresh apple. Wow. You know, yeah, I, I really like the names of it too. I mean, who came up with that? It was a genius. I mean, something to beef about, something to taco about. <laughs> so, unlike, unlike something to cluck about, because he's always clucking, clucking, clucking. I, I, uh, <laughs> I'm a punny guy, right? Uh, I, like, I, like punny. Do, I like to do things that are kind of like in line, but it's also a standing. It's it's known amongst my fans that if they come up with a name, I will probably make a rub to fit that name. Like if it's something that I can't get out of my head. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it like so with um with something to beef about that was a contest uh amongst my my fans, my my followers on Facebook to name it. And the person that named it got like a free 32 ounces of the product. Something to talk about. Somebody came up with that to me because I had no intentions of making a taco seasoning at all. Brian, one of the issues that I have as a you know, as a backyard cook is the you know, I'll put on a rub and then I'll put on a sauce mm-hmm. and a certain someone in my house, <laughs> my better half, will say, you know, sometimes the two don't exactly go well together. Right. And what I noticed in the in in the package that that I received was like I used it had the rub and the sauce. Now, unless I'm mistaken, seemed to go well together so like there was something for rubbing mm-hmm. i put that on chicken and then it went very nicely with the magical mop mm-hmm. they worked they worked nicely together uh am i wrong was that was that not meant to go together because it, it tasted good so i i try my best 
to make sure that when I release a product, it goes with another product or it goes with multiple products. So for, for instance, something, something sauce and something and the magical mop are both low sodium because one of the, one of the problems I have with that is most rubs are very salty. Mm-hmm. And then most barbecue sauces are also salty. So what you're right. getting is just pure salt at the end. You're getting you're getting pure sugar and you're getting pure salt. And that's and I hate to say it, but that's what a lot of people seem to think barbecue is about. You know, like if it's if it's barbecue and it's saucy, it's got to be sh- super sweet and and salty. You know, I was glad to have a different type of sauce. It's. It's nice to not always have that. The popular sauce that's on every shelf, at least in this area, yeah. is will remain nameless. But you know mm-hmm. the one I'm talking about, mm-hmm. and it just it, it's got that sweet, syrupy, you know, just thick, and it has its purpose. But mm-hmm. yours was just it was a it was a very nice change, and you know if you're making the like I make a lot of chicken. And I know Jeff makes a lot of chicken, which is great. But I want to have some variation. If I'm going to make chicken all the time, let's change it up. Yeah. You know, so. And listen, I'm always available. If you want, if you want suggestions or you want just to pitch an idea at me, um, I'm always available to sound it off. So like for, for instance, um, someone, Someone decided to do chicken and dumplings with my something to clock about. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. So I started exploring that with that person. And uh, and that's that's turned into a mainstay in their house and in mine. You know, whenever we do chicken, we use that something to clock about all across the board on it. You know, yeah, Brian and, also. And, and it's on, on your website as a recipe, which comes, yeah. with, a, which comes with a video. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, look at that. I'm a chronic overcomplicator, though. That's a really complicated recipe for chicken. <laughs> really? Like, yeah. I make schmaltz. <laughs> like we, I go, I go pretty. My wife has to read me in because I'll, I'll overcomplicate everything. I have my druthers. You have to have a special palate to be able to. It's it, it's definitely a special palate, and it, it's a it's a talent to be able to taste something and to pick out the various ingredients in it. I'm not one of those people, but mm-hmm. to make sauces like this and to have to put the combinations of ingredients, you obviously must have a sophisticated palate. I've been told I'm good at what I do. <laughs> you are, you know. Well, you. Let's 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 talk about one of those ingredients because I found exploring your website. Uh, let's talk about tamarind. Something tamarind I yeah. have never heard of before, and you use it in your something something sauce. Why don't you tell I us do. about what I this do. this fruit is? It a fruit? It's it's a it's a fruit. Yeah, it's like a little little potty thing. You're going to look at it and you're going to say it looks like a bean. Yeah. Uh, but it comes out as it's very sour and it's slightly sweet. And it's got a little bit of uh, almost like bitter melon. Like it's not melon. That's It's super sour. Sour and slightly sweet. And it is a great foil for sugar. You want to balance that out. You want to balance that with a little bit of bitterness, a little bit of tang. 
Tamarin's Tamarin's good. I got another rub coming that's got it in it too. You'll find uh you'll find Tamarin in a lot of Puerto Rican okay. and a lot of Caribbean recipes. I've never heard of that fruit before, but I like reading Indian. the fun I like reading the fun facts that you have at the end of the each uh, I guess blog, I would call it, I guess. Uh it was been used in traditional medicine for centuries. Believed to have anti-antioxidant uh, and anti-inflammatory properties. Good for digestive issues, fever, and sore throat. How about that? Who knew? Yeah. Yeah. Tamarind's a, tamarind's a really fun thing. Really fun. I get the feeling that Brian would have been, if it was back in the 1800s, Brian would have been one of those guys with the, uh, you know, coming to the town. And, Snake uh, oil salesman? Exactly. <laughs> I, <laughs> and I don't mean it in a bad way, although now that you said snake oil salesman, how else can you interpret it? But I right. mean that you would have actually, some of those guys must have been selling stuff that worked. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I I don't know if they have sold anything that worked, but... <laughs> I mean, at that time, I'm right? Sure they they sure they used had to have been good, right? <laughs> well, they were using cocaine in uh in certain That's things, true. right? They were That's there true. were certain drugs that they like, were using, like, uh, like your favorite soft drink. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I once heard a comedian do a joke about Coca Cola. He says, uh, he says, my grandparents used to say, when I was your age, I would walk a mile up a hill to get to school and a mile, you know, to get back in the snow. And then he says, yeah. But back then, Coca-Cola had cocaine in it. <laughs> of yes. course you did. <laughs> so, um, yeah. but yeah, your your website is really one of the better ones I've seen. Thank Jeff, you. you you're my admirer of websites. Isn't it good? Yeah. And I want to ask you about another uh, ingredient that I, again, have not heard of, of the, the Jupiter bean berries. Ju- juniper berries. Juniper, juniper yeah. berries. Yeah. Juniper berries, that's that's straight up, that's Northern European, pretty sure Native American cuisine here in the States uses that a lot. Mm-hmm. It's It's got a, um, it's almost like pine notes to it. It's, it's a very distinctive flavor. You'll find it used in, say, like mead, if you're into that at all. Some people float juniper berries in that. I like mead. Yeah, you'll find yeah. it in gin. Gin's another place. You get that herbal, that aromatic thing going on. And I love I love putting it in my uh my herb blends because it gives it that that little it's a different curveball in there, you know. There's a little zhuzh that makes it a little little different. And it pairs well with the uh with the European style herbs that I use in something to talk about. And, and Len, Jupiter berries was found in the grave of uh the tomb of King Tut. So really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was, you know, King Tot was a big smoker. Yeah. He he used to make a mean brisket. <laughs> I'm sure he did. I'm sure. I'm sure someone did for him. <laughs> you know, you could always tell you mentioned mead. So Renaissance festivals and of course this being the summer, this is the time. You could always tell where the mead is being sold because the bees are always, you know, mead is always. made with honey and always. You you got tons of bees. So another uh, ingredient that you use is sumac. Yes. Right. You're yeah. very fond of sumac. I love sumac. Yeah. So tell love us it. about sumac. So it's not the poison kind. <laughs> it's <good>. the, <laughs> it's the, it's the not poison kind. It's a small berry that's very tart and bright and it gives it a little, like a little like funky bitter note right at the end of things. Again, you know, you don't just want sweet and salty and you want to play with all the different flavor profiles to go in, go in there. I use it in my barbecue rubs. 
uh, rubbing and cry. I use it in the mop and I use it in some, some sauce. You know, all these, all these spices. I know like Jeff went to Israel and he brought back some spices and they were some spices I had never heard of, never tasted. So I would imagine that if you're using all these different types of spices and berries and all that, you must be constantly uh, trying all these new ones out. Oh, I'm always on the lookout. Uh, it's 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 funny. Whenever my wife and I go on vacation, the, one of the first things we do is we find a, a an ethnic food store. So whether it's an Asian food store or an African food store or uh, like a Mexican food store, Central American, we'll we'll seek that out first, you know, and then we go to the grocery store and see see what there is. It's like that's part of the trip, yeah. you know. I like that. Yeah, we do that too. You know, I'm, I'm, I go right. I want to see the sauces that are on the shelves. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I used to, I was on a, on a search for Duke's Mayo at one yeah. time. Oh, you can't find it. Can you not, not find it? Not here. There was a time Walmart was actually carrying it on the mm. island and they were, they had Hellman's and they had Duke's and then they. Len didn't know that there was a thing called Amazon out there that he can actually order it from. I, I don't know what, what, what someone's got. Someone's got to tell them this. That well, next cheating. time I send you something, I'll send you some Dukes because it's all over the place down here. <laughs> well, I, that to me, that's going on Amazon. I mean, I have done that, but it, but it, mm -hmm. I want to go. I want to experience the local, like Brian. I want to go local and see what there is. That's the fun of it. Amazon. Well, I mean, it's there are so many different ethnic communities too across the states right and it's not i'm not going to call it weird but when you place armenians in a southern city odd things happen you know because southern cooking intersects with armenian cooking and you get interesting flavor profiles that come out of it that's i'm always i'm always on the lookout for that fusion for that for that nod to culture I guess, right? you know, but also assimilation of where they're at. Like that's, that's a big thing for me. I love it. Yeah. Brian, when I was listening to the other, uh, to the other podcast that you were on, I heard you mention uh, your father who unfortunately passed away when you were very young, you said something that he was, he was actually a very, very proficient, very well-known pit master. Yeah. Yeah. In the, in Northeast Ohio. Well, in my, my County, at least. He yeah. was kind of a he was kind of a legend out there. Like I grew up in his shadow really? more often than not, because um, you could peg me from a mile away as being his kid. Like there's no way you didn't know that that was Lee Jeans. You know, like they're strong. Right. So, but yeah, he used to throw. We used to start something called Fat Eddie parties, where he'd have a kegerator delivered on Wednesday, and they would dig a pit, and then they would cook and cook whatever they hunted for that season over the course of the next two days. And then on Friday night, it would open to the public and then everybody would, would flood in. We had a two, a two acre yard and we would wow. have like, I don't know, maybe half an acre would be devoted to volleyball and baseball. Like we had, we had enough flat land to actually throw up a, a baseball diamond and wow. the rest of it was parking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, that's the whole if you build it they will come that yeah no straight straight <laughs> up the rest of it was parking the only rules were you couldn't go in the house 
couldn't go in the house. So I was outside from like Wednesday to Monday night for the most part. Wow. You know, we couldn't go in the house. So um, couldn't go in the house. What did people do? Uh, you know, when nature called, there were porta potties. They actually would have porta potties delivered. You know, or you know, the woods was wow. a thing. Glenn, this was this was the eighties. You know, Glenn, you were a Cub Scout leader. You know all this. Jeez, that's why um, I never became a Boy Scout leader because Cub Scouts was. I didn't want. I didn't want to do the whole, you know, camping in the woods and yeah. So, so, so Brian, uh, again, cruising your website, I see that you were a contestant on the Great American Recipe season one. Tell yeah. us about your, tell us about your experience there. Oh man, I was contestant on the Great American Recipe season one. I may or may not have won the first episode. You should you should check that out if you didn't. It was a great time. We were in Virginia for about a month, month and a half, I think. And it was dead smack in the middle of COVID. So we had a lot of restrictions, a lot of restrictions on us, which I don't think that we, uh, we followed most of them actually. Like we weren't supposed to hang out with each other, but all, all the talent did, you know, every single one of those chefs, they became family. You know, I still talk to them to this day. Actually, we, we have a, we have a group, a group chat. That's great. It's, it's good. It's good time. We, um we were cooking in Virginia and uh, I was cooking for Tiffany Derry, Leah Cohen, Graham Elliott, and uh, Alejandro Ramos and in the barn. And that was, you know, had its own set of challenges and, and rewards, you know. But we were using um, family recipes for the most part. Like I, I adapted a lot of my mom's, my mom's recipes and my grandmother's recipes for that show. And I see in the picture here that you're holding a bottle of Jack Daniels. So I'm guessing that's one of the ingredients. <laughs> it was actually Evan Williams. Okay. It was Evan Williams. And that, that shot right there was, was, was really, uh, really fun. He never let the director have his way without, without culinary supervising. So he's like, Hey, do you want to make a fireball? And I was like, yeah, I want to make a fireball. Of course I want to make a fireball. Why would I not want to make a fireball? <laughs> And he's like, okay, well, we're gonna, you're gonna cook this ribeye in this this pan and uh, take the ribeye out, and then you're just gonna use this. And I was like, okay, I know how to flambe, you know. And I was like, that's a lot of grease. And he's like, it'll be great. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> okay, he knows what he's doing. And I hit it. And there's a video out there, B side reel of of us actually videoing it of this fireball going ten feet in the air, and you hear in the background. Michelle, the, the the food safety person at the screen, going, "What are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, I don't get in trouble for telling that story. But uh, and Brian, we'll, we'll keep your secret. We're I think we're out of uh I think we're out of NDAs. So, <laughs> Brian, you have um a picture here, and this is something that I like to do with sauces is not just use it in the common way. So uh, you're holding it. I mean. Somebody could look and say, oh, it's a hot dog. I think it might be a sausage, but who knows? And you're putting the Clevelander sauce on it. It's a bratwurst. Okay, bratwurst. And mm -hmm. is that, the Clevelander, is that a mustard sauce? The Clevelander is my is my uh, maple mustard rosemary sauce okay. that is super versatile. Like, you can use it for traditional barbecue all you want, right? Mm -hmm. But 
it also works as like, like animal style smash burgers. It'll replace ketchup and mustard in your home. You want to put it in your deviled eggs and replace a mustard. That's great. You know, you want to put it on hot dogs, ham glaze, salmon. There's so many different places for this thing to go. That's my most awarded product. Uh, it's won 20, 20 international flavor awards. And uh, we recently took gold medal at the 2023 Worldwide Mustard Championship for barbecue sauce for that. Yeah, you, you win awards. Your sauces and rubs are great. Is it now where you can do this as a full-time job or is this still yeah yeah i've been to that point i've been uh i've been pretty much full-time with this for the last two years oh that's excellent you know, um i pay myself a, a pittance but i still mm -hmm. you know right. it's it's what it is but yeah this is my full-time full-time attention it, it's it's there if it's not there then it's never going to grow to where i want it to be like one of the things that was that was hard about the Great American Recipe is that we filmed it right during my busiest season, the start of my busiest season, September, October. And I feel like me being on the show was great. It was great PR. I made lifelong friends, but I feel like it put me back in the growth of my business because of all the stuff that I had to do in order to support it going forward not that i regret any of that because i don't but it's a hard it's hard when it's a it's a one-man show basically well you know bt it seems that you are on the road a lot because you go to all these events oh yeah and uh it's, it's every well not every weekend but seems like every weekend and i guess that's where you're selling your wares and, and uh, making a good buck i like interacting with the public i like what i what i love to do is i love to go to an area and I'll, I'll set up a vendor event there and then I'll get that flavor into that area. And then I'll pick up a couple of retailers there. They'll get the churn back and forth. I come back again next year. I come back with new stuff. The fans show up, you know, pictures get taken, cookbooks get signed, you know, like that, all that fun stuff. And, and that, that keeps me going because I'm not just in an echo chamber. You know, I like I like to pitch it to people that will give me honest feedback. And there's nothing more honest than the average guy that has nothing to lose talking to you. So you go to I see Kentucky, Illinois, Alabama. I mean, you were really all over the place at these these great farmers markets and fairs and and events. I'm I'm pretty blessed to be centrally located right on the Kentucky Tennessee border, and Tennessee's got some. I'm like I'm 45 minutes from Nashville. So all of the Nashville events, no big deal. I'm four hours from five hours from Atlanta, four hours from St. Louis, four hours from Memphis, four hours from Indianapolis, four hours from Cincinnati, you know? So it's, it's four hours from uh, Birmingham, mm -hmm. Alabama. So it's not, it's not hard to get to those places, you know, that's it's less than a one tank trip. Tell us about your last event. It was the uh, weekend of fire. Yeah, Jungle Gym's Weekend of Fire. Yeah. Oh, that was that was fun. That was fun. It's the first weekend of fire since COVID. Have you ever been to Jungle Gym's? You say you've been to Cincy before, right? I have I've been to a Jungle Gym's in Delaware, not not in Ohio. Ooh, you need to go to the one in Fairfield, Cincinnati next time you go. Okay. It is a trip. That is a huge grocery store 
with anything that you could ever want for food. Their hot sauce and barbecue sauce section is like 20 feet long on both two aisles, two aisles, both sides. Everyone that you could ever want is there. And the Weekend of Fire had a lot of those guys there. So like uh, Ray Lampy, Dr. Barbecue, he was mm-hmm. there. K. John, John Hard from K. John's and now Zia Hatch Chili Company was there. Bravado Spice Company, like a lot of a lot of the big names in the industry and a lot of new people, you know, that are just starting out. It's good. There's nothing like the barbecue sauce and hot sauce crowd. Mm-hmm. Those guys are amazing. Ryan, I'm new to your company. Sure. And I say, hmm, I got to try one thing that's going to just make me a fan for life. What's the sauce and the rub? Give me the sauce. Give me the rub. That is your, well, I don't want to say bestseller because that might not be your best one, but which is the one you want me to try? So I would, I would definitely say the Clevelander. That seems like the fan favorite out there. And I would go with my something to beef about. Something to beef about is pretty universal. It goes on everything under the sun from eggs in the morning to burgers and steaks. I love it on the outside of baked potatoes. Like I'll, I'll cook the baked potato in oil and then dust it with the rub and I'll set it on the rack mm-hmm. and bake it off. And you get like, uh, you get a skin that's akin to those tater skins. If you remember right. those mm-hmm. potato chips. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like those. <laughs> yep. But if you're chasing heat, like if you love heat, my something to cry about is spectacular for that because I don't deal in heat only for heat's sake. That is not the way I do anything. I, I'm a flavor guy first, flavor always. It's all about that, all about that journey. You have to enjoy your food, right? So once you once you eat the something to cry about on like shrimp or barbecue or or anything like that, you'll you'll notice that it starts out sweet, salty, smoky, and savory. And then five to 10 seconds in, you're going to get Chipotle and cayenne, that first wave of heat. And then Carolina Reaper shows up in about 45 seconds. Mm-hmm. You don't notice that you're eating super spicy food until about that fifth bone, sixth bone on that rack of ribs. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then you then you end up in this serotonin loop where you're like, ooh, that's so good. Ooh, that's so spicy. Ooh, that's so good. What do you sell more of, your sauces or your rubs? It's a, it's a, it's a pretty even split. Okay. Actually, I sell a lot of, I sell a lot of my barbecue rubs. I think this year, actually something for rubbing is winning the race so far. I think it goes rubbing Clevelander beef, something, something sauce, magical mop. And then it just goes down from there. Now, Brian, you didn't, you didn't start in the food industry. Yeah, sort of. I, I, I started with a with a very agricultural family okay so we we grew and hunted and raised and cooked there was no one was i mean we would order pizza on friday nights but that was it you know otherwise it was like we're making chuck roast this week or we're making macaroni and cheese from scratch not craft you know or or doing you know popper kosh or round steak and rice you know or or latkes and various things crepes and then i ended up working in my friend's pizza pizza place mm-hmm. during high school before i got offered it offered a job in tech you know len the closest store to us where we can buy bt's 
rubs and sauces is 114 miles from your house. But you can always go to btlees.com and, and, and order it yourself. It's let me spell it right. It's B-T-L-E-I-G-H-S.com. And I want everybody to sign up for the newsletter. And I did. And you know what came in my email? A coupon for 20% off. If anybody wants to check that out, you know, try try it out. You do have a store located here. So if you are in the Ohio, Kentucky, even Texas regions, a lot of stores have it. But and you can always get it on your website. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I would also say that we have a Facebook group a VIP Facebook group that is loaded with people just cooking stuff nonstop. And every month we run a contest to see who has the best recipe and it may end up as a featured recipe on our site. Oh, you cool. Know? And it's a and, VIP, VIP group. So uh, BT, Lee, BT Lee's nation. Okay. Wow. Yeah. You know, BT, Brian, your logo, your branding, your logo looks really looks like you. Your wife did this, right? My wife did this. Yeah, my she wife is very she talented. Is a world class designer. Yeah, and she's done she's done work for for a lot of different people. Like we did we did Ray's site. Ah, uh, okay. For him and and a few others out there, but she took a picture of me and then she rendered me in a a sketch sketch from that image and and our uh, our branding like we. We we entered the game when we originally stood up BTLs. We wanted to do it as a hobby here to meet people in town, and then within three months of sale, we won our first international award. And the goal was always to punch up where we were at that time. So when we entered the farmers market, we wanted to look like we should be on store shelves immediately. And then the moment we got validated, I guess. We did a rebrand so we would stand out more on shelves. So we've got that nice crisp label, you know, with the matte, the matte finish on it and everything's white. And in it before it was in a sea of barbecue that was like very dark and flames everywhere. And now we're seeing a lot of people move more towards the white, white labels to stand out on the shelves, you know, as established 2017. Mm-hmm. Can you believe it's six years already? And actually, Jeff, 2017, six years. That's when we started this podcast, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. Happy anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to you yeah. too. But yeah. does it feel like six years? No, it doesn't. We we marvel sometimes at, you know, Facebook has that what was happening six years ago, that time look back thing. 2019 we were running contests amongst our followers to guess the number of jars that we had in our sedan from our trips to old time pottery so we could have you know we could buy mason jars from them and we were doing it all in a sedan like and it's it's crazy to think that we went we went to shows with thousands and thousands of pounds of barbecue sauce in a sedan (laughs) which you used to be able to do in like a hyundai elantra right (laughs) you know i have there's a sauce that i like and this is a tomato sauce for pasta right uh rayos Mm -hmm. now i i just saw that rayos sauce was bought by i think campbell's for like one point something billion dollars 2.3 billion (laughs) dollars see you know because you saw that 
And maybe a little part of you is like, you know, if I got an offer like that, I might consider selling. Is that if someone wants to buy me for two point three million billion dollars? We can talk right now. I, I will take I'll take that check immediately. All right. Uh, so the so you are not so this isn't so you love what you do, but there is a price. I, I love what I do. I absolutely love what I do. I'm very I'm I've got a lot of pride in what I do. Uh, I also know that I'm 44 years old <laughs> at this point, <laughs> and sooner or later, there's got to be an exit strategy involved with this because it's a hard life. It's it's a rough one doing all these shows and making product and and all that. It's it's rough. So yeah, I, if if someone offered me a B, we're, we're good. We're good. I don't think there's anything I would say no to for a B. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know. Now I'm wondering though, you know that that 2.3 billion. I mean, the you, you could then buy a team yeah. in the NFL, MLB, whatever. I mean, I would, or you at least could chip in with someone. Wasn't it, wasn't that what the the Commanders were valued at? Yeah, when some, they, some, when they something sold, it was something like 2B, something like that. Yeah, something ridiculous. I know like that, that Haslam bought the Browns back in the day for one, like. And that's not that long ago. That's only that's only what like ten years. Yeah, ten years ago, I think. Yeah, get yourself a sports franchise. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you could. Uh, I'm many millions might might be enticing as well. Who knows, right? So yeah. Now you're you're from Kentucky now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is yes. that where you have? Is your co-packer in Kentucky? My co-packer is actually in Kentucky. Yeah, I work with a with a small co-packer out of Louisville. I was very picky, very very picky with who I wanted to work with um, because I didn't want to I didn't want to compromise any of my brand tenants. You know, all natural, small batch, gluten free, yeah. vegan friendly, like none of that. I didn't want, mm -hmm. but I also didn't want someone that was like Jim Bob out of his kitchen. You you, you know what I mean? Like we. I went through a lot of, I, I call it dating to marry. That's what it feels like. You're interviewing so many different co-packers and you ask them a lot of pointed questions and all you get back is like, yep, I can do that. And I'm like, well, not for me. You can't because you didn't answer any of my questions at all. But the guys up in, in Louisville established a very good relationship with them. All of most of my sauces will be coming out of there. We do have a uh, peanut sauce coming soon. And they won't touch peanuts in their facility because they're regulated as an allergen, right? And 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 all that stuff. So I got those coming out of Florida. But other than that, that's a that's a West African peanut sauce. That's going to oh. be that's going to storm the stage when it when it releases. Really straight up. That's it's going to be delicious. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's keep keep me in mind when that comes out. Let me know because that I would be I would definitely want to get that. That's. Yeah, that's we're, good. we're uh we're calling it something notorious nice nice now brian imitation is a form of flattery mm -hmm. copying i'm not going to copy i'm just going to say when i listened to you on the other show i thought it was very interesting they they do something called after hours sure. and they asked you a question about who would you want to be at a meal with and you had a very interesting answer well you you mentioned your two famous chefs and then two one famous chef, Julia Child mm, and yeah. Jacques Pepin, mm -hmm. right? 
I, I would love to just cook in the kitchen with both of them at the same time. Like there's, there's, there's evidence of that out there. You know, they, they did it together. Yeah. That, I, I remember the show. Be, that would be amazing. Yeah. They were on a show together. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, I'm pretty sure I remember that. Right. They, they yeah. were. And then your other, you, you mentioned Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg. That would be fun. That would be, <laughs> that would be a different thing, but it would be completely fun. That would be a that would be a wild ride. Yeah. So so now I feel like we should ask him like questions that have nothing to do with cooking and. Actually, I would love to see Julia Child and Snoop Dogg together. That would be even better. <laughs> that, would, that would Julia Child. Yes. And, oh, Snoop Dogg. How are you? <laughs> Well, I, I can't do Snoop Dogg. It would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Brian, we, we're very happy that you joined us. Your company is great. I mean, when it comes to all natural, small batch, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, no filler. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I've had your product. I highly recommend it. Uh, please, everyone, if you're not in a place where you can easily go in and buy it just go to the website btlees.com that's b-t-l-e-i-g-h-s.com please you you will not be sorry and and don't forget to sign up for the newsletter newsletter and and brian why don't you tell us you have uh, some social media out there if anybody wants to get a hold of you so why don't you tell us where they can they can get in touch i'm on it all like literally all of it so you can find us on Instagram at, at BT Lees. You can find us on Twitter slash X at <laughs> BT Lees Sauces. That's a pretty active community. There's a lot of BT Lees evangelists out there on that. I'm also on threads as at BT Lees, Facebook at BT Lees, TikTok, BT Lees, YouTube, YouTube. BT Lees. Like you, you, you name it, we're there. Um, I would like to say one one other thing here, though. Uh, we're about to hit the snack game. Ooh, we're, we're going to release popcorn shortly. Oh, and it's going to be a, it's a straight port of all of our spice blends onto gourmet popcorn. So if you really love that something to beef about, wait until you try the popcorn. I'm hoping that that's going to be in the next month or two. Here, we're going to be live with that. So you're not resting on your laurels. As you come out with products and you have all this new stuff, do you look and and analyze and are there any products that you've discontinued or you are looking to possibly discontinue? No, nothing's nothing's out of pocket, you know. Nothing mm-hmm. is is flagging in sales, nothing is is bad, honestly. That's excellent. We we have so many fans of all of our stuff that there's no way I could I would have a I would have a riot if I discontinued something, any of it, any of it at all. You know, there I would have threats of violence against me. As is, as is right now with something for autumn coming out. I've had no less than three people tell me that I better add it to the full line because they know where I live. So, <laughs> so, and these are out of staters. You know, it's you know I've got a lot of I've got a lot of daylight on my on my products coming forward. We've got, like I said, we're doing these four seasonal blends year in, year out. Some of them might be the same. Some of them might be different depending on what's going through this brain right now. 
Uh, we've got a spicy dill rub that's coming. We've got a, uh, a Northeast Chesapeake Bay style seafood rub that's going to end up coming. We've got a uh, Kentucky bar fight sauce, which is coming. We've got uh, a cherry chipotle style sauce, Texas style sauce that's coming. And uh, I'm working right now in a Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern tahini thing that's rattling wow. around in my brain right wow. now. So, Brian, how much time do you spend a day uh, doing experimenting? I don't really, I don't really carve out time for it. I just kind of let it take me when I, when I do it, you know, when it, when it needs to. Mm-hmm. I, that sounds so artist pretentious, like pinkies out <laughs> stuff. But there have been days where I'm taking a shower before bed, and I'll get struck with an idea, and then I'm not in bed until five a.m because i'm just in the kitchen throw open all the doors pull out all the spices you know and and my spice cabinet is loaded with things just things you know and i uh i see where we go with it like my my winter rub is uh cocoa espresso chili blend with a smoked salt that's great on ice cream or chicken so like wow (laughs) talk about the gap yeah yeah i mean i i I like to flex i like to flex the weird and Mm -hmm. and, but i i try and boil that down to the stuff that goes into the main the main lineup you know the the perennials well we're looking forward to you continuing to keep being a mad scientist, basically, you know, get in that lab, create, and we get to we get to benefit from it. So, thank you, Brian. Thank and you, we, Brian. Thank My Ray Sheehan for for introducing us to you. Yeah, I I Ray's a good guy. He's a, he's one of my one of my best friends. So we're we're good, man. He's a spectacular human being. Thanks for joining us. Thank you Absolutely. very much. Thank you, Brian. I I really enjoyed that very much and uh we thank you for coming on the show so jeff yes sir lots of show lots of show yes do are we done well we are just like the baseball season's coming to an end oh. our show this 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 episode is coming to an end and we are brought to you by bet online it is where the game starts but we are not starting We've given a ton of show. We hope that everybody has really enjoyed it. Stuck with us because I think it was worth it's it's worth the it's worth the effort to listen. Can you imagine? <laughs> it's difficult <laughs> to listen. But thank you, Mickey Calloway. Thank you, Brian Lee. Jeff, thank you. And thank you, let's Leonard. wrap it up. You are w- very welcome. Let's wrap it with the poet, Shel Krakowski, the musician, Dave Dresser, Jeff, the song. Baseball always brings you home, and we will see you next week for episode 205.
Peace.